Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. If you have been a listener to my show, you know that for a long time I have been interested in economics, especially in the relationship between economics and Christianity. I'm interested in exploring the churches and the individual Christians' participation in, contribution to, and ability to shape the economy as means of being faithful to Christ and modeling the kingdom of God. I find ecological or steady-state economics to be the most promising kind of economics. I've done three episodes on that subject and hope to do more. One of my concerns relating to economics is labor. I have never been satisfied with both the way labor has been paid historically, including the present day, and the justifications given for how labor is to be paid. So I called up Mike Buddy and asked him who I should talk with about this subject, and he recommended Elias Krim. Elias grew up in the Southern Baptist Church in Texas before becoming, a few years later at least, a John Paul II Catholic. About a decade ago, he founded Solidarity Hall, a group blog which is focused on alternative economics, including the economics behind Pope Francis and his environmental message. Elias' podcast with co-host Pete Davis is called Dorothy's Place, in honor of the saintly and radical Catholic figure Dorothy Day. More recently, he's the editor of a bi-weekly newsletter called Ownership Matters, covering the emergence of the solidarity economy. Because of the extensive number and creative practices being explored that Elias is monitoring and promoting, this episode, which I hope will be the first of several, will be sort of an introduction to the many ideas and concepts. Future episodes will explore things in depth. Well, Elias, thank you for being with me today. Welcome. David, happy to be here. Looking forward to it. Well, why don't we begin then by letting you tell your own spiritual journey, uh, especially as that has led you uh, into this interest uh, relating to the solidarity economy and the kind of different things that you're doing. Sure. Well, let's see. I am a native Texan, and I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church in a little town in East Texas. So I came from that uh, view of the world. Um, when I graduated high school and headed to UT Austin, I think I also mentally closed the door on that upbringing (laughs) and that religious view. And, uh, I went to, uh, a place that was very secular, UT Austin. And then I went to UC Berkeley, even more of the same. Um, and I wandered around for a while thinking maybe I was an atheist. And then I also was very interested in literature, and I was reading uh, some great classic authors. Uh, For example, I was interested in Dante, the great author of the Divine Comedy. And the truth is, David, reading Dante, beginning to learn to read Dante, I, I discovered something else, which is that I knew apparently nothing about Christianity. Um, so this was kind of a revelation to me. I, I thought I grew up in it, and then I thought, and then I discovered 
what I grew up in was this little trickle of a river compared to which there was a great ocean that I didn't know anything about. So that made me begin to wonder, what was this great ocean of Christianity beyond uh, the sort of Southern Baptist stream I was in? And that led me to try to understand, for example, uh, Roman Catholicism, if nothing else, just to understand what Dante was doing. So it was kind of a cultural question, you know, I mean, it's, it's like uh, we often hear, if you don't understand um, the Bible to some degree, you're not going to understand uh, Western literature because it's critical to get that, you know? So, so that kind of took me into uh, deeper waters. And I began to kind of wonder then, you know, what did I grow up in? I grew up in a culture that certainly appreciated the Bible, and so I'm certainly grateful for that aspect of my early years. But then I, it, I realized there was much more, much more to think about, much more to talk about. And very gradually, I went on a journey to come into the Catholic Church um, as a convert. I did this as an adult, and I did this right around the time of the great kind of triumphal moment of John Paul II, Pope John Paul II, and the fall of the Soviet Union which American Catholics kind of put together <laughs> in a lot of ways. So the, it was this great moment when it was like, you know, American, American Catholics were open to the temptation of saying, uh, we won. We won. <laughs> right? So, okay, well, all right, but, you know, you better be careful with what that means. And so for a while, I was, I was also in Chicago, I've lived a lot of my business life in Chicago, and I worked for uh, and uh, in the financial futures arena, Chicago Board of Trade, and I had a very libertarian sort of supply side, heavily supply side influenced view of the world and of economics, at least for a while. And it was really um, into the 2000s when I began to wonder if that view of the world made sense. I was trying to square it with what I understood of kind of the Catholic view of human nature and um, the human person. And, I, and there was more and more like interference and, and kind of uh, dissonance, cognitive dissonance around those two things. I couldn't square them. I couldn't make them work. And so that took me toward... Uh, a curiosity about alternative economics. E.F. Schumacher was a great name with his book, Small is Beautiful. But uh, as well, you know, G.K. Chesterton. There are a lot of Catholics that are keen on G.K. Chesterton and his apologetics, but they don't notice his economic writings, his social writings. But I did, and they kind of shook me up. Uh, this distributism Chesterton was talking about was not at all aligned with anything that, uh, you know, the usual supply-siders and mainline Republicans, for example, were talking about. So I, I was trying to sort that out. How come that didn't line up, you know? Um, and as I went further, finally, Pope Francis emerged, and I realized Pope Francis was uh, trying to show everybody there's a very alternative economic tradition, or really several kind of bundled together, 
called the solidarity economy, about which I didn't know a thing, but which I've been studying the last few years. And so basically that's where I have come out today in my curiosity about what that means for people that aspire to be Christians. Well, what is a solidarity economy? It's kind of... Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a bunch of things, so it's a little bit confusing. It's a kind of a movement in a way. But the way you can spot it is through a few hallmarks. One of them is it is certainly not anything to do with the kind of conventional neoliberal economic paradigm that is often taught in business schools and so on, uh, and is pretty much the standard operating system for what happens, at least in most of North America and indeed Western Europe today. Um, instead, it is very, very kind of localized. It is very kind of human-centered. It is not profit-maximizing. It is very much attuned to a kind of a community return on capital rather than an investor return, which is different. And it is aimed at widening ownership. You, you could argue that what it wants to see is more capitalists, not fewer. And so we have a system which increasingly produces fewer capitalists. I mean, surely this cannot make sense. Um, so, so the solidarity economy has a much more uh, kind of community-minded approach and is driven by a different ethical sense uh, which is really not a category in conventional neoliberal economics, which claims to be agnostic about ethics. So that's a big problem. Well, I can see that. I mean, that's, that's been one of my own concerns, uh, is, you know, how, how does uh, ethics uh, come into all this? And, and it should uh, come into all this. Um, and you, t you talked, uh, you know, about needing to square your fate <laughs> yeah. uh, with, with the economy. Uh, and, and in one of our uh, little uh, chats before the, before the interview here, uh, you, had, you had raised the question about, is there such a thing as a Christian economics? Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, about that a bit. yeah, it's a provocative question because there are a whole bunch of very well-trained, very well-paid economists who would say, that, that's just a silly thing to say. It's like Catholic algebra or something, you know, or uh, Christian algebra. No such thing. I, I, I think it turns out that's wrong. And what I mean is, and the reason economists are quick to take that position is because they're very eager to resemble physicists. They want to be a value-free uh, inquiry. It turns out, however, that is not the case because economics involves the human person. And, 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 you know, the human anthropology. And if that's the case, then it's not going to be value-free. There are going to be values all over it. And then another thing that has been kind of vacuumed out of the study of economics is history. And if you go back before the modern period, before the rise of modern financial capitalism, and look at economic history, then you discover that for, you know, most of the last 2,000 years, there very definitely has been 
a cultural context for economics, and that context has been much more, we would say, kind of community-minded, communitarian, whatever words you want to use, than our current highly individualistic and largely libertarian outlook. So uh, it is by no means the case that the current model is some kind of untouchable scientific ideal, despite the fact that there are some, not all, some economists that would like to present economics that way. I think you can very definitely argue there have been Christian traditions in economics, several of them, and we have just conveniently decided to forget about them. Well, in um, my own understanding of, of uh, steady-state economics, um, it, it leans towards capitalism, but at the same time, it, it, it critiques both capitalism and socialism mm-hmm. of being growth economies that are unsustainable. Right. Which was a surprise to me when I, when I was reading that. I could see that capitalism is, but I didn't know that, that socialism was as well. And that steady state uh, claims that it is adaptable to either capitalism or socialism. Um, how about the solidarity economy? Yeah, very much so. I mean, there, the solidarity economy is a big movement with a lot of different pieces to it. It is uh, understood much better in Europe and certainly in the global south, as we used to call the third world. Um, because what it means is, you know, it's not state socialism. I, I, I think the, the steady state critique has to do with the fact that in certain economies that claim to be socialistic and are really just forms of statism, you know, they, for example, they take their commodities, whatever it might be, uh, oil or chocolate or whatever it might be, and, and they're trying to make as much money as they can for their national trade accounts. But it involves the same kinds of, you know, extractive and predatory practices that the capitalists do. So we don't get anywhere there. We're not saving the planet when socialist economies imitate their Catholic brethren. So, so I think the solidarity uh, angle on this would be a recognition that growth is very problematic and there needs to be a certain level of growth in terms of the national economy that that is the rational alternative. Just like it's true in personal consumption, you know, we very rarely ask the question in terms of our own personal livelihoods, how much is too much? You know, I mean, do we do we imagine that there's a certain amount of money above which no CEO should be paid? Yeah, apparently not, <laughs> right? There's no ceiling. Right. There's no end to it. And, yeah. and, and if you try to start talking that way, you know, uh, some of our friends get very squirmy and they say, no, you're interfering in the market. You know, this thing ought to be the sky's the limit until finally Jeff Bezos and a few other people, uh, you know, own preposterous amount of assets that distort or part of they are part of the distortion of our national economy in general this makes no sense yeah i agree uh one of my early interviews uh was with rob deets 
Uh, he has a wonderful book called Enough is Enough. Yeah. He addresses what you're talking about. Yep. Yeah. Limits. Yeah. I, I, th- I think Christians believe in limits. I'm pretty sure that comes with the package. I don't think we believe that human beings are entitled to unlimited anything except as a very heretical understanding of human capacity, you know? Well, in one of your um, newsletter Hmm. articles, you spoke of um, a new kind of or a a different kind of ecosystem. Because usually when we think of ecosystem, we talk about you know, planetary things and, and, and yeah. you know, that kind of, uh, you know, horticulture and, and uh, permaculture and those, those kind of things. But you're talking about a different kind of ecosystem. Yes. What is that? It is um, a not very well-connected network of emerging businesses and investors and funders of various kinds of nonprofits, foundations, who are experimenting with different ways to do business. And their goals include environmental goals, racial equity, wider ownership, and they all grow out of a tremendous dissatisfaction with the current kind of venture capital-driven model of startups, for example. Um, And in general, the kind of extractive nature of so much of uh, big business today uh, and a quest for other working models. The truth is we're trying to re-educate ourselves out of what the business schools have been teaching, and we're going further than philanthropy. We're going further than just charity because we figured out that that's a Band-Aid um, a, a friend of mine recently referred to the nonprofit area as kind of a very sophisticated form of money laundering, mm. <laughs> yeah. which I thought was a great, uh, pretty, pretty acerbic comment. Um, so let's go beyond that and let's make more capitalist, but a different kind. L- let's talk about a kind of capitalism that empowers more ownership. And, and the reason for that is because I think there is a growing understanding that ownership is a big part of personal agency. And I, I want to, uh, you know, uh, give an example of that uh, based on a wonderful book called Collective Courage. And Collective Courage is the history of mutual aid, and I guess you could call it self-help, in the African-American community in the United States, going back to practically the founding. And the author, a woman named Jessica Gordon Nimhard, uh, discovered that in the South, in the late 50s and early 60s, there were two big institutions that really helped foment the civil rights movement. One of them we know very well, the churches. What is not as well known is that there were also quite a number of agricultural co-ops where you had small farmers who partnered up to create co-ops for purchasing and other things. And when voter registration started up, it was discovered that if you were a tenant farmer, you know, a, a, a black farmer working for a white man, you probably were very hesitant 
to go register to vote. But if you were a member of a black cooperative and you owned your little piece of land, you felt strong enough, you felt like real enough in the world that you might go downtown and register to vote. And that economic capacity, that foundation, uh, turns out to be a very important factor in how people see themselves in the world. And so if you own nothing, then you may be tempted to feel, uh, be tempted to feel you count for nothing. So that's part of the mentality in the solidarity economy is to empower people by helping them find assets. It used to be home ownership in this country. That's gotten more and more difficult to do. And, and a new way of thinking about it is ownership of your own business or a business in which you are one of a group of worker owners. This is well understood in other parts of the world. It's not as well understood in the U.S. Go into a little more detail that you mentioned kind of earlier. There's two sides. There's the, the investment side. Yeah. And then there's the business side. Yeah. It's this weird kind of imbalance we've got. Um, I, I don't know if everybody is aware of this, but there are enormous reserves of capital held by banks and foundations and all kinds of institutions, uh, investment capital that is trying to find a place to put that money, to park that money, because that's so important to people in the investment community. You want that money to be, you know, uh, deployed in a way that's going to generate a certain return. How much? Well, if you're very aggressive, you'd love to have an 8%, a 10%, a 12% return on that money. And so that's part of the problem. To get that return, you're going to do something to the businesses you invest in. You're going to put them on a treadmill that is, it's like being at a health club where your treadmill just went up 4X in terms of speed. It's going to wear you out pretty fast, you know? So, so the alternative is saying, you know, what if we took a lower rate of return? What if we were more patient? Could we then find businesses to invest in that are not all, you know, digital stars, high-tech stuff? What, what if we just invested in, you know, a local auto shop or a laundry, you know, uh, a, a restaurant, a community business where the returns are going to be smaller? But on the other hand, we were going to be supporting families. We're going to be giving people a livelihood. We're going to be creating social capital around that business, in that town, in that neighborhood. You know, isn't that a return also? How do we measure that? Can we figure out a way to measure that kind of community return? And, and the other side of the table from the funders are the startup people that are saying, we know we don't want to do what the venture capitalists tell us to do. Could we start up a business which has a more humane kind of working atmosphere, which builds people's skills, which gives them ownership, and, and also creates uh, enough of a return that we can be viable and stay in business. So that's the other uh, group that is aspiring out there to create something new. Um, how is that compared to a microloan? A microloan is a, um, a tool in the toolkit to get that done. 
A microloan, often you think of it as something done in uh, the third world, where you've got a group of women, they're in Peru, they've got a sewing circle, they just need to buy a new, one more new machine that's, you know, 500 bucks. So you and a couple of other people chip in, and this group in Lima uh, now can kind of accelerate their business activity, this group of women. Um, you can also do a microloan in this country. But a microloan is just, it's like a little injection of capital, like a little PayPal transaction that's not very relational. I mean, yeah, you can see the photos of the women and you get a little feedback on how the business is doing. Where we want to go, I want to give you a very specific example of this, particularly with your audience in mind. Churches, a few of them, are beginning to discover something called economic ministry. What if we pool some money and figured out a way to build community with folks in our own town who are black or brown business owners and also their families? You know, could we create a form of donation which turns into investment for those businesses? What would that do in our town? And there's some great experiments going on uh, in the area of what's called neighborhood economics. And if you go to a website called neighborhoodeconomics.org, you'll be probably surprised to see how many people are working on this question of church congregations and church assets. You know, to put it uh, as bluntly as possible, what are we going to do with these buildings that are increasingly empty more of the time? And I mean, that doesn't, regardless of the denomination. Right. Right. So that's a big, that's a big financial problem. And it's also a big community problem. Well, and the church that I'm attending uh, has the additional uh, problem. It's, it's under the National Historic Registry. Oh, wow. Uh, so that, you know, adds on can't, a whole new layer. Can't touch anything. Yeah. Yeah. Of what to do. Yeah. Uh, and what you, what you can do with the building and, and can't do. Um, well, one, and one, of the, one of the intriguing uh, ideas you talked with me about uh, prior to our interview was um, the myth of the entrepreneur. Yeah. Yep. And you see Steve Jobs and, and the iPhone as an example of that. So kind of tell us a little more about that. Well, you know, there's a lot of urban myths, and I think this is one more urban myth. I think it's about time to either, you know, put it away or redefine it. But the idea is a solo entrepreneur. This, this person that goes out into his garage and he has this great idea and all by himself, he had just cured cancer or figured out, you know, how to reach Mars or whatever it is. And this one person or a very small group around him, and it's him, okay? It's usually him. They deserve billions of dollars, just untold quantities of capital for what they have just done. You know, this is, this is about Steve Jobs, who was not a software engineer and, and was a brilliant marketing guy, but he has been turned into, he and other people like him, have been turned into kind of icons of American upward mobility and uh, kind of lifestyles of the rich and famous and, and all of that. And the truth is, uh, 
you know, how many small businesses do you have to be involved in before you figure out one person can't do it? It's just not possible. And so, you know, therefore, there's always a team of people that builds these great products and does this great work. But our idea that it is just this solo entrepreneur and the culture around the solo entrepreneur and the sort of, you know, adulation that this person receives is a, does a great disservice to the way uh, quality products are actually built and what innovation should really mean. I, I would also suggest, um, you know, borrowing from some other thinkers on this question, that innovation is another idea that needs to be re-examined because it's turned into a lot of trivial products. What innovation really ought to be about is something else, and it really probably has more to do with repair and maintenance and restoring the world than it does creating the next new thing. But we have kind of a mania over the next new thing, and that is yet another distortion in our economy at the moment. Well, you said that, you know, that, that the, the technologies that jobs used were yeah. really done in governmental things. Correct. Right. The, you, if you take about the iPhone, take it apart, it turns out that Xerox Park and uh, the Department of Defense, uh, the DARPA project, I think it was called, and all these other, the touchscreen, all these technologies were assembled, many of them, even most of them, from publicly funded projects of various kinds, whether that was defense or whatever, going back to the Cold War. So um, it, w it was not um, Steve Jobs and, and, and Wozniak in a garage creating all this stuff out of thin air. It was assembled, brilliantly assembled. Uh, Apple is, is now you know, the largest corporation um, by valuation in the world. It is some astonishing uh, percentage of the Dow Jones average at this moment. So this, this doesn't really, this is not a model we should be following. It's one we ought to be learning from. The um, idea that, let's go back to the idea uh, you talked about of, of building community wealth. What is that? Well, it's a pretty old idea. You know, the truth is the solidarity economy, which some people hear is kind of a new thing. I think you could argue it's a collection of very old things. It's, it's, it's the traditional economy of most of the world. And it is about sort of what it means to live in a decent, at a decent level, but something around subsistence in, the, in a positive sense, if that makes any sense in a consumer culture. So, so um, we, we don't quite get that because we, we are accustomed to upward mobility, we're accustomed to the cult of innovation, and we're accustomed to, you know, limitless growth if we could do it. So that distorts things. Um, but I'm not quite sure I'm answering exactly your question. Give me that again. Well, you, you, you talked about instead of individual wealth. Yeah. Oh, community. Yeah. Community wealth. I, it's because wealth used to be understood as arriving for the whole community. You know, I mean, people, people 
uh, in past times, I, I think would often have argued that it would be shameful to die really wealthy. You know, certainly back in the Middle Ages, you know, back when I was studying the way these things were understood in Dante. Why did Dante really get so angry as to put certain people in hell that were involved in certain kinds of financial transactions? And it was because they were abusing the real nature of money, which was not self-gratification, but was understood as something that had to be shared because you didn't own it. Now, here's where we Christians get into a very controversial topic. You know, in, in, in Catholic teaching, certainly, which was Christian teaching for a long time, there's something called the universal destination of goods. And what that teaching means is that you own it, but only temporarily. It isn't really yours. The air, the water, and even the land are on loan to us. And because they have a universal destination, that means we can't just say, no, this is all mine, mine, mine. I don't have to share. I don't have to care about the commonwealth. I don't have to care about the common good. And if I can make a profit, that's the end of the story. That's fine. It is also very deeply non-Christian. Well, now, is that connected with the concept that you spoke of in one of the uh, uh, ownership newsletters called commoning? Oh, uh, yeah, that's a little bit different. C commoning is, is, you know, like uh, an easy example would be the public parks. Or I'm here in South Bend, Indiana. I'm not far from Lake uh, Michigan. And there are people that are eager to buy up lakefront and own it and say, you know, this, this piece of Lake Michigan down here on the southern border around the dunes, the beautiful national lakeshore, this is now mine. It's no longer available to the public. Well, what's happened there is that you have a piece of the commons, something that used to belong to everybody. We would think of the air, the water, and certainly our public lands, our national parks and all of that is part of a commons. And the commons used to be an agent, an economic agent that would interact with the rest of the, of the economy because that is the way, and it's true today in most of the world, most of the world's farmers operate in a kind of commons arrangement, a shared arrangement about whether that's fishing or that's growing crops or whatever it might be, uh, animal management, um, it's understood that there's a purpose for uh, us to own things in common, that it builds kind of a solidarity among us as people, but it also shares a certain important kind of assets. And the temptation in our current economy is to take more and more of the commons and privatize them, take more and more public lands, turn them over to drilling, turn them over to development, take the lakeshore, turn it into condos, you know, there's no limit on this process, potentially, except where uh, entities, governmental entities have stopped, uh, stopped this and said, no, we're going to protect some of this. We're going to set some of this aside because we understand uh, we, we want to offer it to everybody. Okay. That, I understand that more forward now. That, make, that makes better sense. Well, you, you, then you talk about um, different types of ownership. 
Uh, and you li- and there are four that I kind of glean. Uh, worker cooperatives, ESOPs, mm-hmm. which you need to define for us. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, perpetual trusts mm-hmm. and stewardship ownership or steward ownership. Yeah, yeah. Those last two are some, um, sometimes connected. You know, um, the only one of those that you just cited, David, that most people might immediately pick up on would be ESOPs, Employee Stock Ownership uh, Programs. And that is a kind of a revenue set aside that is for employees that creates, in effect, a retirement program. And it does that because it says to those employees, you are now going to be co-owners at some level, and the level can be pretty small, or it can be pretty substantial. Um, But you suddenly now have a kind of stake in the business, and you are able to cash in that stake when you leave the company, often, um, or certainly when you retire. And that's a great thing. And there are several millions, maybe 10, 15 million, I'm not sure how many people right now today, are involved at their workplace in an employee stock ownership trust um, or a program, which has been available only, they go back to, I think, the mid-70s. So they haven't been around for a long time. But the goal was to create a means whereby in certain companies, hopefully lots of companies, by working there, you could to some degree uh, generate some equity for yourself, just like you generate equity in your home. So that's one. There's, there's a step further, uh, which I've referred to, and is more common in Europe and Canada and elsewhere in the world, which is a worker-owned company, sometimes called a co-op. And cooperative businesses are really interesting because they do something that ESOPs don't do. With a worker co-op, you not only co-own the company, you co-manage the company. In an ESOP, that doesn't mean you get to go to the board of directors meeting and offer your opinions. That's not, that's not possible. The, the governance is the same at an ESOP. But if you're in a worker co-op, you and your colleagues are running the business, running it, making decisions, whether it's HR, compensation, marketing questions, you folks are going to figure it out because you are the management. There is no CEO. There are no stockholders. You own all the stock. You own, essentially, in your, um, in your ownership, you are empowered to make all of those governance decisions. So that's pretty unusual. And the, the, um, the trusts uh, are a little bit different in that this is a very specialized kind of European model. But what happens with a trust is that there's also ownership, but the ownership is by a board, which has agreed, uh, and this is not true in a co-op. Uh, co-ops can be acquired. You, you can demutualize a co-op business and turn it into a conventional business, which sometimes happens to the great disappointment of the co-op community, which is always hoping that you know, they won't, they won't uh, see that occur, that profit motive kick in. But with a trust-based steward ownership business, as they have in Europe, um, there's a board that runs the company that 
says in the bylaws, the company will not be sold. Its mission will not be altered. And we will attempt to create the same and maintain the same company culture in perpetuity. So that's about as ironclad a guarantee you will have. That whatever the founder or founders thought they were doing and whatever they wanted to build, that's about the closest you can come to like really making that permanent. Because even with these other forms of businesses, as, as mutualistic and democratic as they might be, it is possible for another entity to come in, and if a majority agree, the company can be bought out and done with whatever the new owners want to do. So there's a lot of different ways to do this uh, in terms of trying to make a more democratic business, trying to spread equity and ownership. There's a lot of ways to go at it. And we, in this country, we've made them not so easy to do. We've made them kind of tricky and legalistic. Uh, in other places, Italy, for example, it is much easier to form a worker co-op. Canada, Quebec, much easier to form a worker co-op than it is in this country. But you you think that you're in your monitoring of these things, you're you're finding that co-ops are growing. Well, there's certainly yes, they have been growing, particularly out of the pandemic. Interestingly, because people have left certain businesses and attempted to do a startup, and they decided they don't want to do the usual startup. Another thing about a co-op is that if you got a group of owners, you know you got a little bit of a comfort factor there. It's not just you mortgaging your house and rolling the dice, you know? If you've got three people that say, yeah, I think, I think we could create a really great restaurant based on our skills, based on our work history, whatever, and we're going to pool our money, and we're going to co-own this thing, you know? And, and we're going to make our employees co-owners uh, as well. And if you look, for example, in the Bay Area, there's a group called the Arismendi Bakeries, and they've got a bunch of little co-op bakeries around the Bay Area. Uh, all the employees are owners. All the employees make substantially more than the minimum wage or even, uh, you know, practically professional wages in that area. They make all their own decisions. And they now have about a 10-year history of not only doing that, but also collaborating as co-ops in order to create new co-ops. They launch businesses within their little network. It's called the Arizmendi, A-R-I-Z-M-E-N-D-I Association. And they are terrifically good at uh, leveraging this kind of European idea. Well, even if it's democratic, you still need some kind of model of management. That's true. What are you finding is being used as models of management? Yeah. Like yeah, that's right. You can't have everybody deciding everything. We all, <laughs> we all know that. So what happens is you, you develop teams, and this is a popular concept. This is not just a co-op idea. But you kind of break down management, and instead of a bunch of middle managers, you have teams that work on different areas, you know, depending on people's backgrounds. It's also understood in these co-op businesses that you might have people that have special skills kind of irreplaceable skills, and sometimes compensation can be adjusted to adapt for the fact that you may have one person who is super technical and needed, and, and 
to bring that person in, you may have to compensate them accordingly. But on the whole, uh, it's basically a team approach. And then the other thing is, and this is very idealistic sounding, people rotate in and out of different jobs. You might be a marketing person for a couple of months, and then you move over into the financial side for a couple of months. And what's really interesting is that people in these co-op businesses, these tend to be mostly somewhat smaller, so this is easier. They become very knowledgeable in a variety of skills across their company. And on top of that, usually they are in an organization practicing open book management, which means everybody knows all the numbers. That's very transparent. And, and there, there are really a lot of ordinary companies that have figured this, this out too, not co-ops, but just companies that say, you know what, if you really understand the numbers, you're much more motivated in your work because you can see what's going to happen if you and your team don't you know, reach your goals or maintain a certain quality. There's an impact, and you will know what the numbers are for that impact. And that gives you a real sense of motivation in the business. So open book management and transparency is another big component in the co-op. Well, one of the things that motivated this interview for me was, you know, that uh, in my understanding of the, the, the standard story um, of, the, of the individual owner uh, whose, whose job, whose motivation is to limit the amount that he pays his employee, <laughs> right. his employees, right, in order that he can get rich, right, or he can get rich, absolutely. Uh, and how does how do you, how do the, how do you negotiate pay scale? And now you mentioned you know that there's sometimes you have a technical person that you have to compensate a little more, uh, but overall, right. how does the negotiation of of pay scale happen yeah. within these new forms of economy? Th this is going to be shocking, but you know we have a. a we have a system whereby it's not unusual for a CEO. What, what's the numbers now, David? 300 times, 400 times what the lowest paid employee is making. Just, yeah, you know, uh, Jeff Bezos makes more money walking to his car in the parking lot than most people make in a year, right? There are all kinds of crazy calculations like that. Right. right. Okay. In a co-op, and the outstanding model, which maybe some of your listeners may not be aware of, Mondragon, M-O-N-D-R-A-G-O-N, is a very large uh, enterprise based in Spain. It is a combination of a network of co-ops, a bank, a university, and an entire internal um, sort of a, a human services system, retirement, savings, everything. Um, it started from a tiny business in the early uh, 1950s, started by a Catholic priest, uh, Arizmendi, who wanted to create a business based on Christian social teachings. And what he created was replicated, and then replicated some more, and then scaled up even higher. And so now Mondragon has 80 or 90,000 employees who are all worker owners whose bank is the Mondragon company. It's their big credit union. I think it's the fifth or sixth largest in the country of Spain. And they have shown how it is possible to take a workplace 
and turn it into a learning place and also a place of great solidarity and innovation. They start new co-ops, just like the group in California I was talking about. And this model has proven that on a big scale, these are not just little bakeries, this is a great big, you know, um, multinational sort of corporation, which certainly in its Spanish component is worker-owned and sometimes elsewhere abroad also, but mostly in Spain. And it is the working model that proves that co-ops uh, are not only doable and democratic, but can work uh, to the tune of $12 billion revenue annually a year. Are there about well um, if my audience uh is intrigued by this um uh, excited by it persuaded by it uh how do they become engaged what ways are they able to become engaged in in all of this enterprise yeah th well there's a lot of different pieces here right <laughs> right um co-ops i mean you could just go to um you know, the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops, they have a website. Um, if you simply Google Worker Co-op, if you go on YouTube, there's a bunch of great videos that will introduce you to what is a worker co-op, a worker-owned business, in other words. Um, if I were to mention a book, there are many, uh, but in addition to Herman Daly's work, I would also mention a wonderful book called Donut Economics by a woman named Kate Rayworth, R-A-W-O-R-T-H. And I'll mention one other book, uh, particularly from a more faith-based perspective, and that would be a book by Nathan Schneider, S-C-H-N-E-I-D-E-R. And his book is called Everything for Everyone, which is a kind of a play on the idea of the Christian teaching of the universal destination of goods. And what he's doing in the book is exploring that idea and other related ideas going back, uh, way back to the Middle Ages, in fact. Mutualism, cooperativism, uh, commoning and the commons, and community wealth building all the way up to the modern day. And it's a wonderful, very readable uh, book. Well, one of, the, one of the articles you sent me, um spoke that in 2019, uh, Pope Francis uh, put out an open appeal. Yes, he did. Uh, to try to rethink the economy. Yep. And that some of this is the outgrowth. That's right. Of that effort. That's right. Yes, he is, you know, I don't know if <laughs> listeners are all aware of this. Popes don't kind of sit there quietly in their study alone and like make up stuff. They have this big room full of experts, you know, from they've inherited some of them. They bring in some. For example, one of Pope Francis's experts is Kate Rayworth. I'm pretty sure she's not a Catholic, but her values, her vision in donut economics line up with where Pope Francis and the advisors around him, a number of economists, well-known Italian, mostly economists, but not all. And so he frequently refers to the solidarity economy. He frequently refers to co-ops. And when he does so, I think American audiences are kind of wondering, what is he talking about? Who is this? And so the solidarity economy, as I say, is not a particularly American thing yet. It's a Canadian thing, particularly in Quebec, 
And it's also in France and Italy and, you know, a number of other European countries. And it's certainly in Latin America. Um, but that's what he's referring to. And back in 2019, he called for a meeting uh, under the heading of the economy of Francesco. That's, that's him, Francis. He just said, let's get together the entrepreneurs. Let's get together the young business people. Let's get together the economists who think we need another way to go. And by the way, it isn't state socialism. So don't worry about it. It's not that. In fact, it's very grassroots. It's completely bottom-up at the moment, except in a very few places. And it is people-powered. It's not driven by multinational banks. It is driven by community needs and communities that are creating economic projects at human scale. And Pope Francis is saying, Christians everywhere, everybody everywhere, you need to know what this is and what it is attempting to fix in our world because so much of our world is on fire right now. And this is part of the answer. Well, Elias, this has been uh, an intriguing and to me exciting uh, conversation. I am deeply grateful Thank for you. what you and those that you work with are doing. Uh, and that you're helping us uh, see possibilities uh, that we hadn't thought about, uh, mm -hmm. we didn't know exist. Right. Uh, so I'm eager for us to continue our conversation. Great, great, enjoyed it. Well, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The intro and outro music for this episode is from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come, which is found on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and is used by permission from the Porter's Gate Worship Project. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing gospel dot b l u b r r y dot net to subscribe and hopefully to donate your participation will help me continue this effort thank you for listening and for your support blessings May the words from my mouth speak your